I'm Jacob McDonough, founder and portfolio manager of McDonough Investments. I manage a concentrated portfolio of stocks for clients in a separately managed account structure. In this episode of the 10K Podcast, I'm going to go through the 1906 annual report for the National Cash Register Company. Charlie Munger gave a speech to USC's business school in 1994 entitled, A Lesson on Elementary Worldly Wisdom. The transcript of this speech was printed in the book, Poor Charlie's Almanac. The first time I had heard about National Cash Register was by reading this book. Munger says that, quote, But people get long runs when they're right on the edge of the wave, whether it's Microsoft or Intel or all kinds of people, including National Cash Register, in the early days. The Cash Register was one of the great contributions to civilization. It's a wonderful story. Patterson was a small retail merchant who didn't make any money. One day, somebody sold him a crude cash register, which he put into his retail operation, and it instantly changed from losing money to earning a profit because it made it so much harder for the employees to steal. But Patterson, having the kind of mind that he did, didn't think, oh, good for my retail business. He thought, I'm going into the cash register business. And of course, he created National Cash Register. And he surfed. He got the best distribution system, the biggest collection of patents, and the best of everything. He was a fanatic about everything important as the technology developed. I have in my files an early National Cash Register company report in which Patterson described his methods and objectives. And a well-educated orangutan could see that buying into partnership with Patterson in those early days, given his notions about the cash register business, was a total 100% cinch. And of course, that's exactly what an investor should be looking for. In a long life, you can expect to profit heavily from at least a few of those opportunities if you develop the wisdom and will to seize them. At any rate, surfing is a very powerful model. However, Berkshire Hathaway, by and large, does not invest in these people that are surfing on complicated technology. After all, we're cranky and idiosyncratic, as you may have noticed. End quote. That was from the speech I mentioned that Munger gave. I was a little nervous when I started researching this company. As Munger says that, a well-educated orangutan could see that this was a good investment. I was really hoping I could live up to the well-educated orangutan he mentions. Luckily, though, Munger, as usual, is right. It's pretty obvious that this was a pretty amazing business that Patterson built. I found that story to be very interesting from Mr. Munger, so I decided to take a look at the 1906 annual report for the company. As I started researching the company, I came across a book written in 1923 on John Patterson and National Cash Register called John H. Patterson, Pioneer in Industrial Welfare. It ended up being an excellent biography and one that I'm going to quote a few times in this episode. I'm going to read the first few pages of this book now as it sets the scene for the founder's journey. Quote, A sandy-headed farm boy came back from college to conquer the world. The world had a different view. 
it was amused at the very notion of being conquered. The boy could find no work at all other than on his father's farm, which bothered him mightily because he could have done the chores quite as well without a higher education. He had no trade. He had no profession. He had not even the ordinary clerical knowledge to qualify as a bookkeeper. He had only a diploma, and no one seemed to think that entitled him to a job. The boy was 23 years old. Far too old to be hunting a job in a country town. The boys who were worth anything were all placed by that time. Many of them were already well settled down and heading families. For two years, this boy milked the cows and hunted for the kind of job he wanted. Then he put his diploma away and went out to take what he could get. The best that he could find was what no one else seemed to want, a job collecting tolls on a canal. It was the kind of job well-suited to a decrepit old man. The traffic was small, and the bookkeeping was elemental, just the sort of place for one who was about to die to crawl into. Nothing could raise the salary. There was no post ahead to be promoted to. It was not necessary for the canal authorities to pay more than a bare living wage for a collector who needed to be just barely alive to do all that was required of him. The boy who slipped into this quiet backwater of life was John Henry Patterson, a boy who could not find himself, who did not know what to do with a surging curiosity that wanted to go through everything and find everything. At 25, he saw his whole energy caged in a blind alley job, which asked of him not more than a fraction of what a cash register can do today. The salary was not enough to live on. The exertion, mental and physical, was not enough to keep the restless lad alive. He looked for a sideline. In a few months, he hung out a coal and wood sign, although he had neither wood nor coal. He got a few orders and took them to a local dealer to be filled. He made a personal affair of every order, and those who ordered from him once came back to order from him again. It was not a whirlwind business, not enough to justify giving up the $500 a year net that the canal paid him. His brothers, Stephen and Frank, likewise being unable to find jobs, came to help out on the coal and together the three of them managed to find money enough to lay in a small stock of coal and wood and eventually to own a delivery wagon. But it was not until six years later that the Patterson Coal Partnership decided that the $10 a week from the canal was not so important a financial item as to warrant dividing John's attention. They found it hard to give up a $10 a week certainty. He gave up the canal job and plunged into the coal business. Six years as a toll collector had not broken his spirit. In another eight years, the brothers had about half the retail coal business of Dayton and an active interest in several coal mines. They were prosperous in a small-town way. Their methods of doing business were far ahead of those of their competitors. They were in a fair way not to become rich, but to become soundly well-to-do and eventually pillars of the community. And if John H. Patterson had done what any ordinary man would do, decide that he had made a place for himself in the world and thereafter play safe, 
there would be no reason for writing this biography. His passing would have been an affair of a local news note, a funeral sermon, and a tombstone. But it was not in the nature of John H. Patterson to be satisfied with anything. His energy, his curiosity, his desire to do something in a big way were not dulled by years of drudgery. The years rather served to resolve his visions into a desperation for accomplishment. End quote. I love hearing stories like that. This was one of the most inspiring books I've read in a while, and it was written all the way back in 1923. Patterson's family had a farm growing up, and they had a store where they would sell some food and produce. In the book, it talked about how Patterson remembers often being awakened at night by his father, asking him if he was sure he had charged a certain person for the things that he had taken home. He would think back on this memory when finding out about the cash register. Patterson later worked as a toll collector, then had a few retail operations related to the coal business. In the 1906 annual report, Patterson writes about his first experience with a cash register, saying, quote, We had operated a general store for three years at a large margin of profit, had declared no dividends on a capital of $3,000, and were in debt $16,000. In fact, we are worse off than though we had nothing. We had made no bad debts, and the loss was occasioned in not making a record or not making a proper record of the transactions which occurred between the clerks and the customers, end quote. Patterson then bought two of the first cash registers that were made. James Riddy, a Dayton saloon keeper, invented the cash register in 1879. Riddy was able to get a patent on the device, but then sold the business soon thereafter. The business was called the National Manufacturing Company at that time. After Patterson bought these cash registers for his store, the business showed a profit of $12,000 with no increase in business. What changed? The book mentions that after an investigation, Patterson realized that the cash register identified two problems at his store, fraud and poor incentives. Obviously, the cash register can catch employees who are stealing cash and can help employees remember to charge customers for everything. The main problem, though, was that Patterson was rewarding the clerk who sold the most goods. His clerks were giving away free goods in order to attract a loyal following. Customers would wait to buy from certain clerks that they knew would give them some free merchandise. The clerk wound up getting a bonus, but the store was losing money on these uncharged goods. Patterson was very quick to recognize the significance of the invention, but at the same time, he was both a little impulsive and indecisive. In 1883, after Patterson had purchased a few cash registers and discovered the benefit to his store, the National Manufacturing Company was raising a small amount of capital. This is the company that owned the patent and produced the cash registers. The company had $12,000 of capital and was raising another $3,000. Patterson and his brothers made the full $3,000 investment, but when the company showed a loss in the next fiscal year, the Pattersons sold their investment to anyone they could find. They were able to sell some of it, but they couldn't find a buyer for the full amount of their investment. Later on, Patterson and his brothers got out of the coal business and went out west to find a farm to purchase. 
they thought about going into cattle raising or fruit growing. Here is what the book had to say. Quote, Late in October, they stopped at Colorado Springs to decide which of the three ranches they would buy. One evening, they fell into conversation with a merchant from the east who informed them that he was on a long vacation. John Patterson, always anxious to learn, wanted to know how any merchant could afford to take the chance of leaving his business for that length of time. The merchant told Mr. Patterson that he had a good manager and also he owned machines made in Dayton, which counted the cash receipts. Each day, there was mailed to him a statement with the punched paper roll from the cash register. This, he said, gave him a perfect check on his business, and he had no reason to worry. The following morning, the merchant showed a report to Mr. Patterson. That night, John Patterson said to his brother, Frank, this man's experience with the cash registers is just the same as ours. What was good for the little store at Colton is good for every store in the world. It is only necessary to convince merchants of the good that the machines will do, and they will be used in every store on earth. The cash register business can be made one of the largest industries in America. The next day, they left for Dayton with the intention of buying a controlling interest in the National Manufacturing Company, end quote. I find it interesting that Patterson second-guessed himself one more time. He went back to Dayton and struck an agreement with the owner to buy a controlling interest in the National Manufacturing Company for $6,500. By the next day, Patterson decided that he had made a mistake and tried to back out of the agreement. He offered $100 and then offered $500 to the former owner if he would cancel the purchase agreement and take back control of the National Manufacturing Company. The former owner declined. Apparently, neither of these men wanted to own the cash register company, at least on this particular day. So now John Patterson was stuck with the cash register business, and he would go on to make it his life's work. He was 41 years old when he acquired control of the company, but this was very much a startup business. He went on to change the name of the company to National Cash Register, which I will now refer to as NCR. The business wasn't very successful before Patterson bought it. Many store owners failed to see the benefit and wanted to avoid spending hard-earned money on additional equipment. Change can be slow, as inertia is a difficult force to deal with. On top of this, employees of stores push back against the new invention. Some of the pushback was from employees who wished to continue stealing. Others felt insulted by the apparent lack of trust. Patterson had his hands full, convincing others to see the benefits of the cash register that he believed in. Patterson took over near the end of 1884. The company would go on to sell about 500 cash registers in 1885, 1,050 in 1886, and then 1,995 in 1887. The company was growing fast, just about doubling the number of units sold in 1886 and 1887. Back to the 1906 annual report. Patterson writes that they started out selling cash registers to cafes and a few grocery stores. 
but then lists what kind of businesses they sell to now. The list stretches a few pages long and covers just about any type of retail business. The company lists its sales record stretching back 16 years, and there was never a decline in revenue during that period. From 1890 to 1905, revenue compounded at a rate of about 13% per year. Throughout its history, the company had cumulatively sold more than half a million cash registers by this point in time. The annual report says that, quote, Our constant aim is, first, to get the best machines, second, to sell the greatest number of them, and third, to have them made and sold at the least possible cost, end quote. Patterson is saying that its aim is to achieve scale and to share the economies gained from that scale with customers. Scale economies shared is a concept in business that many of the great companies have followed, like Costco, Amazon, Walmart, among others. The company employed 4,000 people at the factory in Dayton, as well as 1,400 salesmen. The company was known for treating employees well, and they produced many successful alumni. Tom Watson Sr. climbed up the ranks at NCR before being fired. Apparently, John Patterson was known to have a quick trigger in letting people go. Watson went on to lead IBM in its formative years. Charles Kettering ran the research department at NCR before going on to lead research at General Motors. In terms of employee benefits, NCR was like the Google of its day. Google is known for its perks, such as having chefs around to cook free meals for its employees. NCR owned 144 acres at its campus in Dayton. Patterson said that, quote, it is good for a man to go out among the green fields, end quote. They had baseball diamonds, tennis courts, several community clubs, and the NCR Country Club. Apparently, Patterson allowed for a 20-minute break each day in the summer for an employee to go take a bath. Patterson talks about the loyalty of employees and the culture at NCR in the annual report, writing, quote, As our organization becomes more perfect, the ability and loyalty of the men become more apparent, and their pride in the company's success becomes greater. One party who thought of going into the cash register business, but who decided not to do so after visiting our factory, said that he was not frightened by our patents or our capital, but by the loyalty of our salesmen, who said, if you go into the cash register business, that is what we will do to meet your competition. He said he did not want to go in competition with a business where the rank and file said we in place of the company. Our whole organization seems to be animated by one great mission, and that is to make the National Cash Register Company a model in personnel, in buildings, in machines, and in the cost of manufacture, and in the good that it does, end quote. NCR had a first mover advantage, and it owned a patent on the cash register. I covered the competitive dynamics of General Motors in previous episodes of the podcast, and an important differentiator in this story is that the cash register had a patent, unlike the automobile. 
Despite this advantage, NCR aggressively invested for its future. It had an inventions department where it would conduct research and development. In the 1906 annual report, it is stated that NCR owned 1,261 patents by this time. The company aggressively went about improving its machines, patenting the improvements, and fighting back against patent infringements. It wrote in the annual report that, quote, it is now practically impossible for others to make a cash register of any value that does not infringe many of our patents, end quote. Patterson goes on to talk about customer service in the annual report, writing, quote, We have always treated our customers, after they have been sold, in such a way as to make them our best advertisement for our machines. Our interest in a user does not end when the last payment is made, and we want him to feel that we always have an interest in him, as long as the register is in use, and that he can call upon our agent at any time for any suggestions or anything that will help him in connection with his business. Its phenomenal growth is largely due to the fact that our salesmen know that for every dollar we get for our machines, we do the purchaser $10 worth of good. Our machines will last a lifetime, but we make so many inventions that it pays our customers to almost give away their old machines in exchange and buy new ones, end quote. The book made an interesting point that in the early 1900s, the common wisdom was that the way to make a profit was to reduce expenses. Patterson took the opposite point of view as he aggressively spent money on advertising and on selling. Even though he was a manufacturer, Patterson did not view his most important task as design, production, or managing employees. For Patterson, first came advertising and second came selling. These two items were his focus. In the book, it says that, quote, his unvarying rule when short of money or when outgo began to exceed income was to get more income from more sales. He believed that cutting down expenses to make ends meet was the surest possible way to prevent them from meeting. He held that cutting down expenses cut down initiative and energy. If his bank account became anemic, he went right out after the fresh blood of new business. He doubled his volume in the Depression following the Panic of 1893. John Patterson was always at his finest when in trouble. He fairly reveled in it, end quote. This reminds me of how General Motors did not cut back on R&D and technological improvements during the Great Depression. The best businesses get stronger during the tough times. Patterson put his money where his mouth was. He was advertising even when payroll was tight and in question. To Patterson, advertising was as serious and as essential of an expense as payroll or production. He was happy to pay large sums of money to salespeople in the form of commissions as long as they were getting the job done selling the product. This wasn't all too common back in the day. In the annual report, Patterson also talks about the data it has collected over its history of aggressively pursuing sales opportunities. I'm sure this data was difficult to gather in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Quote, We have a list of over 1 million names of retail storekeepers in the United States and Canada 
and a list of 603,172 merchants in foreign countries to whom we send regularly our advertising matter. We have been making up this list for 20 years, and it is the most perfect list of retail storekeepers, we believe, that any company has. It is hard to estimate the value of this list alone, end quote. The annual report lists 10 things that the company always keeps before it, five things to increase and five things to decrease. The five things to increase are new inventions, sales, profits, cash on hand, accuracy of what we think, say, and do, the good we do. The five things to decrease are opposition to our methods, unlawful competition against us, unnecessary expenses, cost of production, and finally, inaccuracy of what we think, say, and do, i.e. the evil we do. Some of this may seem obvious, like wanting to increase sales and profits. Every company wants that. A few things stand out to me, though. The company just seems to be so focused on its goals. There is a simple precision in that list. This also shows more evidence of its aggressiveness as the company is hammering away at R&D, the sales process, and fighting patent infringements despite having the dominant spot in its industry. Patterson and NCR are just so laser-focused. This seems like a company that is scratching and clawing for survival. The company was somehow able to keep this hungry culture and attitude alive despite being in a position of abundance. I think that explains why the company's still around today. NCR is still a company with billions of dollars in sales. So they adjusted from the early cash register to more technologically advanced point-of-sale machines to ATMs. And at one point, they were even the fifth largest computer manufacturer. And they eventually got into some software services as well. If you rest on your laurels, there's no way you can do that in business and stay alive that long. When I say that NCR had the dominant spot in its industry, that alone doesn't do it justice. The company had 95% market share. They absolutely owned the cash register industry. In the annual report, it says that, quote, we have practically no competition in the whole world and we are selling about 95% of all the cash registers that are sold, end quote. This eventually causes some trouble for the company, as Patterson and some management were actually sentenced to spend a year in jail due to antitrust laws. That was eventually overturned. No one spent any time in jail, none of the NCR management team. But it just shows how dominant NCR is. Maybe I'm naive or missing something, but I'm surprised NCR was caught up in the crosshairs of antitrust only because they really grew organically and to me it seems like they grew the right way versus maybe Standard Oil and John Rockefeller. I guess I'm not saying he grew the wrong way, but he grew a lot through mergers and acquisitions and kind of gobbling up the market that way. Whereas NCR, like I said, it was much more organic and just kind of like going about business the the right way. With that being said, 
if you have 95% market share, that's going to be an issue, at least from a regulator standpoint. In the annual report, Patterson is oozing with confidence. It is pretty funny as he invites competition to come visit the factory. He tries to help potential competitors avoid losing all their money and wants them to at least have full knowledge of the situation before deciding to compete with NCR. He wrote that, quote, Our success has naturally caused other people to try to imitate us and to try and get into the cash register business. We always invite people who are thinking of going into the cash register business to come to our factory at Dayton. We do this because we want them to be thoroughly informed of the situation and of our position in the cash register business before they go ahead and invest large sums of money in competition with us. Some of them are smart enough to come and investigate, and others do not come, end quote. In the annual report, Patterson writes that one of the mottos of NCR is, good enough is the enemy of the best. You can see that the company puts this into practice with its aggressiveness in sales efforts and in research and development when they already are on top. The company grew through the use of debt in the early days and through retained earnings as time went on. The company paid little in dividends, which was unusual, especially back in this time period. Patterson wrote about this topic, saying, quote, I have been identified with the company for 20 years. For many years, the holder of common stock drew nothing in dividends from the business. It was only in recent years that we declared any dividends, and in no year have we declared more than 3%, and that was only done one year. During the other years, we have declared only 2% on the common stock. This has enabled us to keep our money in the business. It has enabled us to keep ahead of the demands of the trade by the best inventions and has also enabled us to have the most improved machinery in the making of our machines. And all of this, of course, has enabled us to sell our registers at reasonable prices. End quote. In Munger's speech, he mentioned that the cash register was one of the great contributions to civilization. This was due to the fact that it reduced the temptation to steal. Reducing the temptation to steal will naturally lead to less stealing. This is a good result for society. Not to mention the cash register made business more productive. When discussing the benefits of the cash register, Patterson wrote that, quote, The cash register is different from any other product known. It is not only a labor-saving device, but also a device that means morality and honesty to the community where it is used. It removes temptation and encourages honesty. It is the only machine that we know of that saves physical and mental labor and at the same time prevents dishonesty and encourages honesty. It removes temptation from hundreds of thousands of clerks who might otherwise be tempted, end quote. Patterson wrote in the annual report about execution. This topic has been on my mind lately as it has come up in all of the podcast episodes I've done so far. Geico failed to execute and raise prices when inflation ramped up in the 1970s. GM failed to cut production in response to an economic downturn in 1920 
leading to major debt and inventory issues. Ford was slow to adapt to the changing automobile industry. It missed the rise of the used car market. It was slow to adjust to the shift from the open body to closed body car. Ford was also behind GM in offering financing options to dealers and consumers. Here's what Patterson had to say on the subject of execution. Quote, Business under modern conditions is a constant battle, and like a battle, its success or failure often depends on the instant decision of an important question. An army without a general in command is in no worse condition than a business of large extent without some one man to choose between policies and dictate its course with absolute authority. With competent advice and full information from subordinates, and with the good of the business alone at heart, the decisions of one man holding final power are usually right. Our business has been conducted on this theory, and the president, who controls the majority of the stock, has also been the final arbiter of important policies. Our success and growth are the best justification of this plan, end quote. To close, I'll leave off with a section from Patterson in the annual report. He wrote that, quote, Our success has only followed years of patient experiment and labor, as well as personal devotion and the giving of our time exclusively to the betterment of the organization. The expenditure of large amounts of money and the faithful and persistent application of carefully laid plans and methods which have justified themselves as the results will show, end quote. He went on to write that, quote, Our prospects were never better than they are at the present time. We have practically no competition and are not likely to have. We move so rapidly and look so carefully into the demands of the future and have such knowledge of the future wants as no one outside the business could possibly have that it would be impossible for anyone to see any reasonable hope of any return from any investment in opposition to us, and we see nothing ahead to prevent us continuing the steady growth of our business, end quote. That is a pretty strong position to have, and quite a bit of confidence coming from Patterson. Even though this 1906 annual report was published, I don't think that NCR was publicly traded at this time, in the book, it said that John Patterson and his brother owned practically all the common stock at this time. The firm was financed with $1 million of preferred stock, though, and this might be why the annual report was made public. Unfortunately, there was no balance sheet or income statement in the annual report, at least not in the copy that I have. It would have been nice to see full financial statements. Anyways, it was still a fascinating report to read, and once again, I'd like to reiterate how much I enjoyed the biography on Patterson. I'll leave off by circling back to Munger's speech at USC. He summed up the position of NCR in just two sentences. He has a way of uh, simplifying things. He said, quote, He got the best distribution system, the biggest collection of patents, and the best of everything. He was a fanatic about everything important as the technology developed. End quote. Having patent protection, along with relentlessly improving your distribution system and the technology of your product, all makes for a very strong position for a business. Mr. Patterson's position was a nice one to be in. That is where I'll leave off for this annual report. 
In the upcoming episodes, I'm going to take a look at a company called Teledyne. In the meantime, I'd love to hear any questions or comments from listeners. You can reach me at jacob at mcdonough-investments.com or on Twitter at mcd underscore investments. Thanks for listening.